Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. And uh, hi to uh, Ryan, uh, who's joining us today. This is Ryan Singer, Head of Strategy at Basecamp. Hey, guys. Uh, Ryan, you are the author of the recent book, uh, Shape Up. And uh, we're very happy to have you with us in the podcast. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. All right. So um, you, you came because we kind of reached out to you. Uh, it started when I think uh, for me personally that I had seen something on uh, the Daring Fireball website, uh, an ad there. I think, Scroll, you may have seen a, something about Shape Up from one of your clients. Is that right? Yeah. So one of my clients said, hey, I read this great book, Shape Up. We should do the stuff in it. Yeah. And so we were, we were both intrigued. What, what caught my attention uh, was the uh, strong statement, this is uh, not agile. Mm. Uh, and then a quick look at it, we said, oh, this, gosh, this seems pretty agile. We've got we, we to gotta find out more about this. <laughs> but before we get into the sort of agile, non-agile nature of it, um, maybe can, for our listeners who haven't heard about it, can you just, what is Shape Up? And uh, you know, what, why did, what did you write the book? Yeah, so Shape Up is basically teaching how we do product development at Basecamp. And this is based on 16 years of experience that I've had at the company. I joined back in 2003 and we started building Basecamp V1 shortly after I joined. And then we, we, we actually shipped V1 in February of 2004. And we've been, we've been working on it since. And I've been through a variety of roles since then. I started off doing UI design, uh, learned programming, sort of had a foot in both worlds. Then from there went up to more product management, product development, kind of managing the integration of both. And then uh, up into strategy, figuring out kind of what's the important thing to do next. How do we make trade-offs about how to spend our time and so on. And um, the whole time we've actually managed to establish a pretty good record of, of releasing things and, and regularly shipping and having a, 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 pretty happy kind of energized team that feels good about making progress all the time. And um, we, we worked based on kind of gut and intuition in the early days. Jason and David brought a lot to the table in terms of their values and, 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 and how they wanted to work. And we were also, you know, informed by the very early, early agile stuff, the sort of pre scrum agile, you know, like more agile manifesto type stuff. Mm -hmm. We also had a lot of other ideas of our own that we kind of brought into the mix and then as we grew and as we took on bigger challenges, you know, the way that you behave as a team of three is very different than, than, when, you, than when you double and quadruple that and, and, and the company around you gets bigger as well. So we've had to figure out how to articulate what we were actually doing and, and, and how we were able to repeatedly keep moving the product forward and shipping on time and, and, and having a good cadence and, and feeling like we were really making meaningful progress on what we were doing. So shape up is, it was sort of the right moment to look back and say, Hey, we actually can explain kind of how we do this both to ourselves and, and to the field. And so it's on the one hand, it's kind of, here's how Basecamp does it. And on the other hand, it's actually a big box of tools and especially a lot of language to talk about the, the, the right types of things that we need to be able to tease out and, and discern from each other in order to, to sort of get out, to untangle ourselves from a lot of the problems that I'm seeing other software companies are, are, are dealing with. Yeah, I, I like there's a, a lot of um, language that you introduce uh, throughout the book uh, and, some, and some metaphors that I, that I really like. Um, before we get into that, though, I want to just ask a, a question about this sort of this transition you made from small to large, because in, in, the, in the book, you describe how, you know, you 
you, you got to where you are now from some of the problems you had. And it reminded me also a bit at the end of um, Kent Beck's Extreme Programming Explained in, in uh, first edition, he said, every methodology reflects uh, the fears of the person who created it. <laughs> That's the methodology reflects those fears. And I have a feeling that then that these things reflect maybe places where you had some pains as you, as you grew the number of people. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's more that um, growing forced us to articulate it. Um, mm. I actually think that the, the, to put it into the fear framework, <laughs> that yeah. the thing that really drove us from the beginning that I can identify was a fear of, of not finishing and mm. a fear of, of getting into that place where you're, you're in this never ending project and your morale is just getting worse day after day. Right. That's the thing that we just never, ever wanted to be in. And, and a kind of corollary to that was uh, Jason and David kind of built a fear, not a fear, but they built a value into the culture that was against um, deliverables that weren't running code. And so there's this question of kind of how do you, on the one side, sort of value actually, hey, let's just go build it, let's go stand it up, and that's gonna be progress instead of making a big document and so on. You know, this is sort of standard agile. Everybody's kind of heard that before. Yeah. But at the same time, if we don't step back and set a bigger target for where we actually want this thing to land mm -hmm. and, and when we wanna walk away from it, and, and not just how much time do we think we need to spend on it, but how much time is it worth? How much time do we want to spend on this? And where does the point come that it's taking too long than we wanted and we'd rather just do something else, you know? So yeah. this, this more sort of strategic way of thinking about it. And, and this is where I think the, the agile pendulum actually kind of has swung too far um, in, in, in the vast majority of cases because it's all about change, 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 and let's only think two weeks at a time but then where's the macro picture? How do you actually decide where you want to go and where you're going to land? You do need to do upfront design. The thing is that you need to do upfront design at the right level of abstraction. And most of the time when people are trying to do project definition work, what in the book we call shaping, they're actually working either much too abstract or much too concrete. So mm -hmm. either the big theme is you know, improve speed, or you know, like make the app faster. Or the theme is um, maybe more feature-based, like build a calendar. But what does that mean? And how do we know when we're done? And how do we make trade-offs about that? So then we can swing the other way, where the work is all defined very concretely with, let's say, a bunch of wireframes in advance and a bunch of bullet points about what it must do and must not do. You know, then you've overspecified the design, kind of leaning back into the waterfall direction because you're defining all the details when you know the least because you haven't gotten your hands dirty yet, you know? So a lot of what, we're, what we've arrived at is figuring out what are the things that we actually need to determine upfront in the shaping phase before we commit to the project so that there's clear boundaries on the work. It's, it's worth, we, we don't wanna spend more than this much amount of time. These are the main architectural ideas that make us think it's feasible here are uh, the broad strokes of the interaction of what we think needs to happen, but without the fidelity of wireframes, we're not getting lost in that level of detail. And then giving the team the entire project as, a, as this sort of bounded 
unknown, but with, but with nice clear boundaries on it, and then say, we're not going to assign you the tasks. We're not going to break this up into what you should do two weeks at a time. We're going to give you, let's say, you know, for us, six weeks is the right amount. We're going to give you the whole six weeks, and we're going to give you freedom inside of that with these boundaries to figure out the right approach and to make the right trade-offs and, and to discover what, what all the details of the work are that we have to resolve. Yeah, you're, you're covering a, a, a lot. What you're seeing here is very dense. It's all very simple, but having read the book, I know how these pieces fit together a bit because it's worth maybe for the listeners who haven't read it to kind of unpack a couple of things here because you, you're talking about, so first of all, you're talking about in terms of projects, right? So that's the main yeah. thing is you're, you're defining a project and these projects, you're using a time box of six weeks. Yes. Right. Can you talk about the staff of, of a project? Because I think this is one of the things that, that for me was a surprise reading it was sort of, you know, what's the staffing for a project? So what's, what's a, a team, what's that size of team that's working on a project? Yeah, a team for a project is at minimum one designer and one programmer. Mm-hmm. And at maximum, one designer and two programmers. <laughs> constrained <laughs> options. There. That is right. That's, yeah, that's when do you have of, one, and, one and one and a half? Exactly. Yep. And um, uh, so it's either, yeah, one designer, one programmer, or one designer and two programmers. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on in the cycle, we'll have um, a, a QA person who rotates in to mm-hmm. help. But we can talk about sort of our view on QA. It's a little bit different from, from, what's, from what's normally done. Um, and then, and then that's it. And then there's no, there's no manager, there's no product owner, there's nobody else who's actually in the team who, who's, who's responsible for, um, for the outcome of the work for, 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 for participating in the work and being part of that team. It's just the designers and, and, and programmers. And you use this interesting word that, that I haven't heard in a long time, this word programmer, um, because I'm, I'm used to words or phrases like uh, front-end developer or uh, um, uh, back-end developer or, or my favorite, DevOps developer, um, yeah. which I can go on about for a long time. Yeah. So what skills do these people have? I kind of have the sense of what a designer does, but may, maybe yours are different. Yes. What, what's a programmer do? Yes. So uh, the way that we're set up, a designer is determining what the user interface should be. And they are actually creating the views for that. So they are running the app on their machine and they're committing to the source code. They're committing to the branch and they are, uh, we're a rails shop. So they are actually um, creating rails views and doing a a little bit of JavaScript here and there as needed. So some people would call those front end developers, but, but you call them designers because they have a, I assume because they have a, a heavy design mindset. Yeah, they're designers who can make stuff. Mm-hmm. They're they're capable designers, <coughs> and um, they empowered they, designers. Yeah, they have skills. They can um, they have skills beyond uh, making something that looks good. They can actually build stuff, mm-hmm. and um, that is an amazing thing. It absolutely know. is, and it 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 stems back to um, you you don't have to have that combined skill set to 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 work this way but it'll give you a massive boost in your productivity and and eliminate a lot of 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 rounds of handoff and stuff like that it's it's just a deep simplification actually a big reason why we're able to do that is because we are really big fans of html over the wire instead of this sort of single page app stuff where mm-hmm. where there's a bunch of stuff getting rendered locally uh, this single page app approach became very popular and there is some basis for it in a massive, massive company. You know, this mm. was developed like React was developed out of Facebook, right? 
And I heard they're, I heard they're large, a little yeah, larger. They're, than, they're, than, they're a little bit bigger than most other companies, right? Yeah, indeed. And there's this very common fallacy that if you're wondering what to do, you look at the biggest person and then you copy them. Mm-hmm. But there's a massive scale mismatch there. And I, the world, I, have, I can't tell you how many um, teams I've had to tell, don't do the Spotify model. Yes. And don't, <laughs> you know, don't do feature flags, for example. Mm. Feature flags put you in a world of pain that you do not need to deal with at all um, before you hit a certain scale. And, and even then, I think you could still debate it. You know, if you have a, a vast number of teams that are working in parallel and there's no way to make sure that they're all working in sort of orthogonal areas of the app, then, then okay, you're going to reach that point. But if you've got one team, two teams, even three teams, three or four teams working in parallel, but they can just work on different things, you know, work on different areas, then this is not at all a problem. So we're doing a lot of things that are, are, are appropriate to our scale as right, well, now about a dozen people on the product team and about 50 people in the company. Sure. Well, we're, um, we're, let's come back to feature flags because I'm really curious about that one. But, but I, I didn't quite, quite get to hear what the programmers do. You told us what the designers oh, do. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the programmers, what's a programmer do? The programmers program. Mm-hmm. Uh, the designer, so the, 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 what, the, what the designer provides is, is a view that has um, the actual affordances in it, you know, so the buttons and the links and the fields and so on. And those need, um, those need to actually connect to some models and some business logic and some controllers so that they do things right. Mm-hmm. And so the programmers are doing everything from, from wiring up what the designers give them in the sense of we need, we need to make routes for that and controller actions and so on to uh, figuring out what the sort of what the model should be. You know, there might be new tables or there might be some migration to the database. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's no DBA is doing that in the background. Right. That's, that's all the programmers and the programmers are also, you know, writing their own tests and they are responsible for the quality of the code and they're mm-hmm. responsible for the code doing the right things as well. So we don't have another person somewhere else who should f- decide if the code is good quality or not. That's, this is sort of very much in the spirit of, 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 of good old fashioned extreme programming that, that the programmer is the tester. Makes sense. And, and how about things like system administration? So is there somebody maybe, or is it part of the team or is it somebody else who would look after, uh, I don't know, integrations or um, uh, scaling of the database or, or um, provisioning new servers? Yeah, at our current size, we've been able to separate those out into different teams with different responsibilities. Mm. So, so um, now at the size we're at, the programmers on these product teams and, and ShapeUp is all about kind of making changes to the product or improving the product. Um, those programmers only need to think about product mm-hmm. uh, because we have, so we have an ops team. Ah, oh, got it. Okay. And then, and then in addition to that, at our current size, we've all, we also have a, a team called SIP, SIP, Security mm. Infrastructure and Performance. Mm. And they're the ones who are doing things that are structural, that are more on the side of the app than, than, than ops is, you know, because mm-hmm. ops is, is a few layers down. But, you know, if you find out that some, some, uh, some process that was originally set up as a, as a queue that's starting to pile up and get too slow, mm-hmm. actually be parallelized or something like that, you know what I mean? Then, then who's going to do that? That would be something that SIP would take on among all kinds of things that I, I, I probably don't understand because I'm more over on the product side and sure, of course. And, and now we're tipping our toes pretty deep into the stack, you know, which, mm-hmm. which goes a little bit beyond what, what I'm current on right now. Sure. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't mind hearing more about the QA people. You said that they, they were a bit different. 
our attitude um, around anything quality related. So that would be, um, uh, you know, you very often you have someone who does like a QA role who's let's say checking edge cases to see if there's there's funny things that that the team didn't catch. The we want to think of of QA code review. Uh, what what other people might call like acceptance testing or that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. All of that, we want to be in the hands of the designers and the programmers. We want them to be responsible for the quality of what they make. So, because a huge part of all of this is that the designers and programmers are not ticket takers. They're not just pulling off a task from the queue and then if they check off that task, they did their job. Yep. They the, did the their common job. term for that that we often talk about on the podcast is uh, a feature factory. There's a good article about being uh, yeah, in the yeah. feature factory where you just get a ticket and it comes down the conveyor belt, you do it and you pass it on. You, you want the opposite of that. Yes, and you also hear code monkey, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, you're just, you're just doing tasks, right? And what we want instead is we want, we're, we're giving the teams responsibility to work together to make sure that the whole thing actually makes sense as a whole. And it does, the whole project kind of does what we, what we intended it to do. Or if they, if, they, if they learn something and tweak it along the way, that it now does what, what they intended to do. <laughs> you know, the point is that, that the thing actually makes sense as a whole and works as a whole. And, some, and they're all thinking about the whole. You know? And so from that point of view, we don't want, and this is also a, a scale thing, we don't want to have, let's say, programmers and designers stuck, unable to deploy because they didn't get QA. Or and we don't want a programmer unable to merge because they didn't get a code review. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean that QA and code reviews aren't valuable. They're amazingly valuable. You know, because we have QA, there's lots and lots of edge cases that the team would have never thought to to look for. Yeah, exactly. That, that they're able to improve. But if for some reason the QA person got sick, it wouldn't mean that the project gets delayed. Got it. Makes sense. Right. And the same thing with code review. If someone senior is, is interested and available to take a look at the pull request, uh, they can do that. And then it becomes a, you know, a, like a, a, a teachable moment or a training opportunity or whatever. And if they're not available for that, the, 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 the team should be able to, to, ship, to ship it without that and everything should be fine. Right. So we're sort of setting the standard for, for what we what we think the teams are capable of, of, of doing. And then all these other things are just sort of uh, sugar on top that, that make us all better. But but they shouldn't hold us back. Got it. Makes sense. We're at our normal podcast length, um, but we're having a great time talking to you. Would you be willing to hang around and, and be on uh, next week's episode? Oh, of course. We barely scratched the surface here. Fantastic. Okay. So uh, thanks everybody for uh, listening to Troubleshooting Agile. We always enjoy it when um, people click the subscribe button and come back uh, next week so that they can get to, you can get to hear more of uh, Ryan Singer on uh, Shape Up. Um, You can get in touch with us at troubleshootingagile.com where you can find Twitter and email and anything else we can think of for for getting in touch and proposing questions, for example, about how you're using some of these techniques or or questions you'd like us to pass on to Ryan. Great. So uh, we'll see you next week when we'll uh, continue this discussion with Ryan Singer from ShapeUp. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Carl.